In a man's psychology, it represents the danger of subjecting one's experience of the anima to rational and intellectual analysis and miss the whole point of the anima, which is to help a man let go of that and discover his own inner voice. Too much consciousness, reason and intellect can drive away the mysterious workings of Eros and the feminine. from today's talk to the C.G. Jung Society of Melbourne. And welcome to the Society's podcast, I'm Ariel Moy. The Jung Society offers a space for the exploration and development of Jungian ideas and practice. We offer talks on the third Friday evening of every month, as well as courses and workshops, a Jungian library, a newsletter and discussion groups. Please visit our website at jungsocietymelbourne.com or our Facebook page. Kevin Tui studied at the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich and is a practicing analyst in Melbourne. He's frequently co-taught the Core Concepts course at the Society with Annette Lowe, as well as a number of short courses and lectures covering dreams, fairy tales, depression and individuation. Kevin explains how fairy tales serve as guides to our unconscious processes and how we might beneficially work with these as well as dreams towards individuation. The Frog Princess tells the story of a patriarchal way of being that neglects or rejects the anima or feminine energies within men and how this leads to imbalance. Kevin then explores how, through rich detail and symbolism, the third son, Ivan, is able to integrate the anima or Frog Princess. I hope you enjoy Kevin's talk. Um, I hope everyone's got a copy of that fairy tale. Has everyone got a copy? Okay, and you can hear me down the back? Okay, so let's make a start. So, um, one of the insights of Jung that is easily overlooked is what we call the autonomy of the psyche. By this we mean the capacity of the psyche to initiate and constellate processes quite independent of consciousness and not merely as a reaction to outer situations. Often when consciousness or the ego does get involved later, it tends to slip into thinking that it was the architect all along. Just as organic and vegetative life grows and develops silently, and to us at least without consciousness, or not as we experience it, so too our psychic processes continue to grow whether we cooperate with them or not. This stream of life within us is like an underground river. When we look at a dream or reflect on the meaning of the events of our lives, we make a bridge or open a door to this river, scooping up a cup of its water. It's easy to think that when we shut the door, close the journal, leave the analytic session, that the life underground pauses too, but it flows on constantly, following its own gradient, creating new constellations, seeking its own level feeling out for the true nature of the personality. One sees this in the analysis when an impressive issue comes up. One is convinced life cannot continue until it is addressed. And then the next week, dreams or events have subtly moved us on to something else. Only later does one understand why. In dreams and fairy tales, we see the products or images of this flow of life 
the pictures of libido or psychic energy. And when we understand these images and their tendencies, we feel connected to something deeper, to the thread of our lives. And then the water becomes the aqua vita of the alchemist, the living water. These symbols produced a psyche's way forward, or nature's way to break through and enable progression at both personal and collective levels. In fairy tales, we see the same pattern as we follow how nature deals with the initial problem constellated in the story, and we try to follow the thread which leads the situation to a level where life can flow again. When we study a fairy tale, we focus on this underground river, the interplay of the archetypes without the details of the personal, which are dotted through our dreams. The flow of images or symbols reveal the typical patterns or grooves along which the psyche has flowed. These patterns have been carved out over time immemorial to help us serve the progression or development which is our individual fate. These are the age-old ways nature has found which keeps life flowing. The characters and situations in fairy tales have a different quality. They are abstract figures, so one has to watch the tendency to take the tale too personally. In the case of this Russian tale, I mainly examine it as it relates to the problem of the anima in a man. The anima problem broadly deals with the liberation and differentiation of the feminine aspects of a man's personality, but it's also about the problem of the feminine in our times. Before we venture into the tale, there's one further aspect which we need to note. Both masculine and feminine energies have light and dark sides. And the way one engages with these energies determines whether they lead to creative or destructive possibilities. When the attitude of consciousness is deficient or imbalanced, we constellate the dark side of these energies. So turning to our story, the initial situation or constellation in the story is a masculine quaternio, the king and his three sons. And so we see from the start that the masculine and feminine energies are not in balance. The queen is missing or not mentioned at this point. And so there's some problematic connection with the feminine as it's excluded. Both masculine and feminine qualities are essential to life in order for life to continue. Later we learn the feminine element, the princess, appears in human form in the beyond, but in animal form in the kingdom. This suggests that at some time the feminine element was included in the conscious setup, but now has been excluded, only found at the fringes of life, in the woods, so to speak. By feminine, we refer to the qualities of eros, instinct, spontaneity, nature, feelings, in both men and women. At the end of the tale, the prince and princess are united, so we can see by following the thread of the story how the self, regulating function of the self, operates in the situation. This self-regulation aspect of the psyche is a natural process. If you're one-sided in some attitude or aspect, the self works to restore the balance, even if that means undermining you. 
This is why on the personal level we pay such close attention to the dreams because they reveal the compensations required of the ego in order to be true to the inner essence of the personality. The king in our tale represents the masculine principle, what we call the principle of Logos. He shows the ordering aspect of the father archetype. When it is functioning well, it is related to nature and the feminine. Logos gives order and a measure to the chaos of the material. Logos becomes negative when the link to the feminine and eros is lost, or when it uses the feminine for profit or utilitarian purposes. Here the kingdom has lost connection to the feminine, the feeling values. For instance, today we could say the king could be the market economy, which has lost contact with human values. In many tales, the king is resistant or works against the new possibility. But our king serves the self in the initial event. He's the one who provokes the process of individuation and sets the whole thing in motion by setting the task for his three sons. When the king or logos principle functions in a way as to serve the self, then it keeps an eye on both tradition and evolution. An effective logos is aware of the need to respect nature for the future, for the sun. Psychologically, the king represents an attitude to life which is open to the unconscious and the irrational in order to redeem the situation. For us, it would mean always remembering the limits of consciousness and remembering it too has a shadow side. The king serves evolution by bringing the sons to make the bow and shoot the arrow. He provokes life in the situation. The shooting of the arrow is a motive found in numerous fairy tales. Similar motifs in other tales include blowing feathers and seeing where the wind blows them or rolling balls. But common to all of these is that the element of chance or fate or eros is given an opportunity. It is included. The bow and arrow give a specific flavour to this motive of being open to the irrational. Once the arrow is shot, it can't be recalled or revoked, and it is the same when one is true to eros. One sets something in motion, one is committed. Now it's not books or lectures, but one has dared to live. So let's look at the bow and arrow symbol more closely. Like the crescent-shaped moon, the bow in mythology is usually feminine. The arrow piercing and penetrating aimed at the goal is usually masculine. Bows and arrows are attributes of the god Eros. When Eros hits someone with his dart of passion, some kind of change is put in process, for good or for worse. When Eros hits someone, you can observe this. A person has a routine, a continuity of attitudes and principles, but when the beloved appears on the scene, suddenly all that can be changed. Suddenly everything becomes negotiable. One even begins to spend money. Eros dissolves and coagulates. The bow and arrow was also used in some countries for divination, to find the new way. In our story, it symbolises the union of masculine and feminine, the opposites. We can say that this task reflects a purposeful openness to the irrational 
initiated by the king. If we take the tale as compensating the collective consciousness of the time, we could say that there's a need to be more open to the irrational, spontaneous aspects of life. The life that's too ordered, practical and efficient drives away the eros quality. If we're not open to the irrational, we will eventually fall into it. The eldest son's arrow is returned by a prince's daughter. He's closer to the ruling masculine principle as the feminine element he contacts is part of nobility and the collective. The second son's arrow finds the general's daughter. That's not a bad catch either. He's contacted a feminine element further away from the family situation, but she's still part of the conventional life of the collective. The fact that the two sons are joyous and happy without any time elapsing to build relationship would indicate that real relatedness with the feminine has not occurred, but rather they're still in the realms of convention and concerned with what is acceptable. Persona and outer standards still rule the situation. Ivan, the third son, or the fourth figure in the Quaternio, brings in the irrational factor. The tension is built. The number three represents the movement and dynamism in a situation. The result of this movement is the number four, which is connected to the irrational, the instinctive and the feminine sides of life. In fairy tales, the fourth happening is usually of a totally unexpected quality to the first three. This often happens in analysis. A person comes into analysis on the third strike. When the pattern or problem happens the first time, one's inclined to say, well, that's life. When it happens again, one starts to think, oops, this has happened before. And when it's happened a third time, you think, look, I better talk this out. This is getting serious. It's not coincidence any longer. On the personal level, the fourth function, or our inferior function, serves a similar purpose. Our inferior function is the rock on which we always trip, or the corner on which we continually stub our toe. It's the link and bridge to the unconscious. It upsets the apple cart. It links us to the irrational sides of life which are usually absent due to them being unacceptable or through us repressing them. The inferior function connects us to the sources of life. It's not under the rule of the ego. In our story, the arrow of the third son is returned by the frog princess. So the feminine makes its appearance first in animal form. So what would that, would that mean? One-sidedness always constellates its opposite. If one rejects the lower, more natural, instinctive sides of the personality, they revisit us as fate. This can be seen where the individual falls victim to drives or compulsions, which are beyond the control of willpower. The instincts repressed now overwhelm. When the feminine is repressed in our lives, this energy seeks an outlet in any way she can. A common way by which the anima can attract the man and get his attention is through erotic material or fantasy or the glimpse of a beautiful woman. The aim is to break down the conscious attitude which excludes relations to the unconscious. Usually these feelings or fantasies are repressed or ignored, 
But if the man has the courage to write down and examine these fantasies, he can begin to pull the anima into the light. That is, become conscious of the depth as well as the heights of his soul. One of the distinguishing features of the anima is this fascinating quality. Fascination is fed in our lives by an unconscious attraction. So the anima fascinates and any person or object in life can carry this fascination. It can be the flesh or blood woman, the new car, all those possessions in the house one felt compelled to buy and later looked on with puzzlement. There is anima, endlessly trying to get attention at whatever level is possible. Behind these drives is the fantasy that if I have this person or am united with this person or have this object, I will be more complete or whole. But the missing wholeness is projected outwards and concretized. But why specifically a frog? Picking up a frog has a different feel to patting a dog. The frog as an animal shares the symbolism of the instinctual world and the relation to nature. As an animal, it is amphibious, moving on earth and water. In other words, moving in consciousness and unconsciousness. It's an emblem of the goddesses of love, such as Aphrodite. It's active in the night and the moonlight, associating it to the feminine principle. And it further shares the symbolism of fertility, becoming active on the banks of the Nile before the fertilizing rains fell. The frogs, of course, are one of the plagues, which, while helping differentiate the religious values of the Hebrews from the Egyptians, also help turn the frog from a symbol of vitality, resurrection and renewal into an object of loathing. Belonging to the instinctual side of life, it came to be looked upon as inferior in the Christian worldview. There's also the fact that it is cold-blooded, which can mean the feminine is experienced at this point on a primitive, thonic level. On the personal level, one can detect a cold quality when a man's not related to his anima. He easily falls victim to moods and feelings of loneliness that result in a coldness and aloofness in his relating with the world. Jung once said that the anima is a system of resentments held by the man. The women in the environment then usually bear the resentment as he projects onto them the cause of his coldness. They have not given him the warmth he expects. It is in fact his own anima from which he is estranged. When the anima is ignored, she becomes problematic and negative and will try to get his attention in any way she can. Hence the well-known features of the negative anima, a certain passivity, a moodiness, sometimes a vanity, or that sulkiness that afflicts men. When the man asks, why did I expect this of life, or the people around him, he begins to make contact with his own anima qualities. If the man is able to face these moods and objectify them for what they are, there's the possibility of him disidentifying with the anima and understanding the feelings of his feminine side and using this as a basis from which to work for or against the collective unconscious. Not every impulse from the collective unconscious 
should be followed. One has to take the anima as she presents. It is a highly individual thing. The required attitude is beautifully expressed in an episode from the Grail myth. A hag walks into the court of Arthur and tells them that she's cursed to appear ugly for half the day and beautiful for half. A knight is assigned to accompany her in this situation and she asks the knight, do you want me beautiful by day or beautiful by night? What would you answer? The, knight response, the knight's response redeems her. He says, what do you want? And she says, because you gave me the choice, I am now redeemed. Psychologically, this reveals the way to begin to redeem the anima who has been imprisoned or neglected within. One gives her sovereignty that is, accepts her in the way she chooses to reveal herself, whether as a sublime goddess or a thonic baobo figure, whether as a good mood or a bad mood, the anima is behind both, whether she comes from within or without. I often say to people, if you were locked away or excluded for that long, you would initially look ugly too. In contrast to his brother's joy and happiness, Ivan becomes thoughtful and wept. He's the hero in our story, by which we mean he's more than an individual hero, he's an ideal. He acts as a model for the ego, which acts in accord with the self. Depression and introspection result when Ivan contemplates his fate. In life, on a personal level, this would re represent the negredo, the self initiates a development that the ego can't understand. We hit an obstacle and don't know why. We become depressed. This represents in our personal life a particular attitude to the difficulties which life sends us. This would be the attitude which asks, what's the meaning of this for me? Where do I need to become more conscious in my life that this happened to me? In this way, the depression could become meaningful and creative rather than destructive. The scene in our tale is too much, it's so irrational, but Ivan does sense that this is a life task. This would be the reality of redeeming the feminine in our life and collective. It is truly a lifelong task. Strictly speaking, the anima as an archetype is never integrated. She's a piece of life that one has to learn to relate to. And then she serves as a bridge to the soul. It is her ongoing function to be the bridge. She always does what has to be done. She does the negative thing in order to dissolve consciousness, then the positive thing in order to bring forth the process of individuation. Precisely because she serves life, evolution is inevitable. Ivan then says, this is not like wading across a river or walking across a field. A river is a symbol of life. It's the river of life that begins at birth or sunrise and then ends at death or sunset. Here the hero recognises that this is a life task. Now his task is not to go across the river, but to go with the river, with the flow of life, not across it. Similarly, walking across a field would represent walking over that which provides and nourishes us. We take it for grant, granted. 
the earth mother, material creation. Up to now, what has been taken for granted must be met by the youngest prince. It's the same in our lives when we take nature for granted on the outer or on the inner in regard to our body, our instincts or our own earth. The frog princess represents this healthy vitality and eros that is potentially positive depending on how one relates to her. At first it seems that Ivan is still caught in rationality and convention. His concerns are all outer focused and practical. How will I live with a frog? Everyone will laugh at me. How could we go to the ball? This is what the anima demands of the man, that he lives in accord with his own inner voice, even though by outer standards it's stupid or not the smart thing to do. For us all it's the demand that the reality of the psyche be honoured. The hero Ivan shows the positive nature of inactivity. He doesn't do much for the first half of the tale. It is in his inactivity that the frog princess becomes active, In our culture, the heroes are usually more active, conquering, doing. But here the fairy tale compensates the collective conventions and our hero is the one who has it all done for him initially. It's the same on the personal level. There is an alert inactivity that is required to meet the unconscious. To be too focused on outer concerns means one fails to live in touch with the unconscious, which invites the depression that forces one or presses one to be still. Now, even at the outset, the frog is taken as his wife, but the frog was held on a dish, we're told. It may mean that there is as yet no real contact, skin on skin with the feminine. She's presented on a dish. It brings to mind the old colloquial phrase, she's the dish which is a colloquial expression for a beautiful woman, here too one can just relate to beauty and miss the real relationship to the feminine. Once again, the progression is provoked by the king. He calls for three contests, first the making of a shirt, then the baking of the bread, and lastly dancing. And again, we see that after the three contests leads to the unexpected. This is the nature of the third It is movement and activity, but in which direction we don't know. Later we may understand the meaning, but in the moment it remains a mystery. In the making of the shirt, the frog princess is active at night. This means psychologically the feminine at this point operates in the night, the darkness or the moonlight. At night the different contents merge or blur. There are not the crippling judgments and intellectual differentiations of the day world. It is akin to turning off the headlights of the car in the country at night. Slowly one's eyes become accustomed to seeing, feeling and perceiving in a different way. In another myth, Eros visits Psyche in the night. Inner work contacts the light of the moon, the strange phenomenon of a consciousness which exists in the unconscious, in alchemy called the midnight sun. We can be illuminated by two suns. In conscious life, it's the light of the sun, but also by the unconscious, which is the midnight sun. In dreams, we contact this different sort of consciousness, this other sort of wisdom. 
this other sort of knowledge. Away from the gaze and heat of consciousness, the princess can marshal the maternal elements symbolised by the nurses. Now the feminine emerges in her real beauty. Clothing generally relates to persona or the attitude one has to a situation. The shirt would represent clothing that is close to the body, intimate, more personal than the outer garments. The shirt represents an attitude to life that is created through contact with the feminine. Now life is no longer coarse but subtle, finely woven with more nuances and personal elements. There are more shades, less black and whites, less principles, less shoulds, less logic. It contrasts the concern for persona, that is how it looks to others and a concern for outer appearances which characterises the elder two sons. Again, it's the king who has the experience to see the value of the shirt. It's fit for a holiday, that is a holy day. Holiness and wholeness are synonyms for a full or complete reality. It seems the shirt represents the development of a more subtle, fine, more whole attitude. When a man is connected to the anima, he has a more personal perspective, a capacity to listen and wait rather than act immediately. The second task of the bread being baked represents something of the basics of life. Bread is life, it's sensation, visible and manifest, a mother food, like potatoes. It is showing the connection that the frog princess has to the basics of life and nature. The chambermaid would represent a, fellow, a feminine element at the service of collective elements, represented by the two brothers' wives. The chambermaid brings no creativity, just hollow imitation. The princess uses the oven shrewdly to trick the wives. There is a mercurial quality at work. The oven is the container, the feminine, a womb and mother symbol. So here we could say that the feminine is able to use the transforming function of the oven to further her designs. Psychologically, in a man, the anima is the bridge to his feelings and intuitions. By containing and examining them, he cooks them, and they can transform. When integrated and owned, that is, eaten, they become the bread of life in their nourishing effects. The third motive of dancing represents the link to the earliest expressions of mankind or humankind. Lawrence van der Post suggests dancing was firstly used to link the earliest, animal, earliest humans to the animal world as they carefully mimicked and imitated the animals around them. Dancing requires an abandonment and lack of inhibition. It is a surrender to a natural rhythm buried deep within each of us. The symbolism of the dance moves into the area of fertility and creation. It's eros in its spontaneity. One only has to watch small children to see how much it is a part of our innate nature. When the man meets the positive anima, he will dare to dance again, to try something different. The dancing can be an intoxicating experience. Here it is a full flowering of the anima and her capacity to dance a man into life, into a creative place. Suddenly, lakes and woods appear, symbolising earth, 
And on the other hand, so do birds representing spirit. It's a vision of the union of opposites which can be overwhelming and disorienting. It seems it was all too much for Ivan as he left the ball first and went home. Unless the ego of the man is strong enough, the encounter with the anima can be like a roller coaster of moods and feelings on the inner and relationships with women on the outer. It's an intoxicating experience, but as the archetype of life, she can both lead the man into life and also away from life. A man achieves a great leap forward when he realises he doesn't have to follow every mood, that there is a choice and a chance not to get entangled. The three tasks set by the king culminate in the irrational fourth happening, the burning of the frog skin. Fairy tales are mixed in relation to the burning of the skin motif. In some tales, it is appropriate and the right thing to do while in others it leads to unfortunate results or it delays the meeting of the masculine and feminine, as in this tale. It would seem that in this situation, the masculine element represented by the prince is not yet able to unite with the feminine in human form. In a man's psychology, it represents the danger of subjecting one's experience of the anima to rational and intellectual analysis and miss the whole point of the anima which is to help a man let go of that and discover his own inner voice. Too much consciousness, reason and intellect can drive away the mysterious workings of Eros and the feminine. This is the burning of the skin. The frog as an aquatic creature would suggest a moist, watery element. So fire and water as opposites at this stage can't be reconciled in the story and the princess returns somewhere far away in the unconscious. The meeting of the opposites in our lives is always a tricky thing and demands great consciousness. The I Ching in the hexagram number 63, which is called After Completion, focuses on the energy generated by the relationship of the opposites of fire and water, warning us that this demands extreme caution. The image used in this hexagram is water in a kettle hanging over fire. And the sage warns us that the steam generated is the energy. If the water boils over the fire, is extinguished and the energy lost. On the other hand, if the heat is too great, the water evaporates into the air. Only extreme caution can prevent damage. One can say the clash of opposites in our lives needs the same caution. The tale then turns. It starts with a two-year wait. Ivan has lost the princess. The first year is the number one. Things are undifferentiated. He longs, but there is no action. Two, the second year, indicates the coming to consciousness. The doubling motif indicates the appearance of the opposites and that something is coming to consciousness. Opposites create polarity from which energy is born. It is the chance, but it could be lost, or the content can slip back. Now the mother is present in the story. The feminine is to the foreground of consciousness, and both parents bless him on his quest. 
So the hero has found his own capacity for action and initiative, the father principle, but also takes the blessing of the mother, which symbolically means we feel at home in ourselves, our being. The positive mother principle allows one just to be oneself. His journey now includes walking. Now he must work as compensation for his passivity in the first half of the story. The masculine has to work to engage the feminine. The woods represent the maternal unconscious. He now has to enter the princess's world. That means one has to meet the unconscious on its own terms and not apply the principles of consciousness. The forest is the place of nature. One aspect is its containing quality. One is embraced, surrounded. Another aspect is one can get devoured or lost. Also, one meets the instincts. These are activated in the woods. In outer life, when you're in the bush, you can't afford to be so one-sided. You need intuition and other faculties which you don't need in modern life. One can't just switch on the light globe. One has to build a fire. One has to be practical. It's the same in the unconscious. One needs all the functions of consciousness, feeling and thinking, sensing and intuition. The three old women point to the fate or destiny aspect of the psyche. Fate or destiny is the constellated opposite, which is a counterpoint to the current collective attitude, which says you can do anything, or where there's a will, there's a way. For the ancient Greeks, the mothers of fate were the three Moirai. The first is the benevolent mother who gives life. The second gives one a definite lot in life, measures your span. And the third is the inevitable because all manifestations in time have an end. Our life comes to an end. The mothers of fate were associated also with spinning. And spinning is a feminine activity, and in a man it's the anima who spins. She's the psychic factor who makes the projections and spins the fantasies. Spinning is putting lots of separate bits together in a continuous whole, in the same way that images are connected in fantasy. Connections are gradually made through the process of association. Dreams are an area where we can all experience the products of the great mother spinning her fantasies. The thread she spins can be followed, and it was Jung who discovered this purposeful quality of the unconscious. The spinning of positive fantasies creates a supportive environment. One thinks here of that natural inward reflection which often takes place in the mother during pregnancy. In the same way, spinning also can spin negative fantasies and intrigues. This is the dark side of the feminine or anima, which makes it extremely difficult for the child or the new possibility in us to find its way. In fairy tales, this negative aspect is often symbolised by the spindle, which has a, a poisonous effect, like in Sleeping Beauty. Breaking the spindle enables the princess to assume human form. It's the meaning of our dreams and fantasies that humanise the feminine. Otherwise, the goal just stays locked in an interesting set of symbols 
but with no impact on daily life. When we think about a dream and interpret it, we follow the golden thread which shows us the way. We then often experience the dream as having a wisdom and a guiding quality. The hero knows the words which gain entry into the huts, the abode of the feminine. The words remind one of the connection of all things to their origin. He tells them to stand the old way, as thy mother stood thee. Meeting the unconscious requires that we accept the way we are and from where we originate, that we don't keep striving to be different from who we are. This acceptance gives the right words or mana to gain access to the paternal wisdom of the unconscious. In our tale, there's the motive of the second bridegroom, which is threatening to marry the princess before the hero connects with her. This is a masculine energy active in the unconscious, which often forms a counterpoint to the king or our ruling ideas or principles. It is often the case that a man is totally unaware of a more primitive, archaic attitude to life which lies latent in the unconscious and which imprisons his feeling. Acceptance of the shadow and the lower and darker aspects of the personality help break up this potential marriage of shadow and anima. When you do not accept your limits, that is your shadow. There you will be undone by the anima because you can't accept yourself. Psychologically, sometimes a destructive complex or affect is so destructive that it requires an heroic effort to turn away or escape. The magic carpet is the means by which this is affected. The carpet, too, is a product of spinning. We can say it often represents the story of individuation. At any one point in life, we often cannot see how the experience or threads of our lives form a tapestry that tells the story of the self. The escape from the destructive tendencies in the unconscious is made by comprehending thread by thread the meaning of one's life experiences and one's fate. One's less likely to be run aground. So in the end we have the balance of masculine and feminine restored And at this stage, just the possibility of the child, which represents the future evolution. So I'd like to finish by referring to a string of reports in recent years about the disappearance of frogs. The blame is laid at the feet of such things as global warming, dryness, the constant light, which drives away the cool, the moist and the dark. This is outer nature, but apparently we too can drive away the frogs. A dream comes to mind of a woman who, out of duty, helped her parents clean up and move house. She knew she was ignoring her own feelings and hunches not to get caught up in this event. That night she had the following dream. My parents are moving house, and I go down to help with my husband and my son and our cat and our dog and a pet frog. There is much packing and cleaning to be done. Everything is dirty. My father's better at cleaning than my stepmother who refused to get removalists. I feel overwhelmed and that I am doing less than everyone else. All is chaos. 
The animals, the dog, the cat and the frog, are playing outside. I realise the frog is missing and am sad. I think he's probably taken refuge in the creek which runs through our property and will be impossible to find. I know he has returned to nature. My son assures me he will find the frog, but I know it's futile. So this dream needs little explanation. When you go against nature, one feels overwhelmed. Or as someone once said, we only get into trouble when we try to do the impossible. A similar constellation of motifs occur in this dream as in our fairy tale. The father or the king principle, the son or the prince figure, the feelings of frustration or stuckness, and of course the frog who knows where to find the water of life and how to stay connected to nature. The reconnection with outer nature is a theme of our time. We read about it every day in the newspapers, but it is often only considered from the extroverted level. It is not understood that this can happen only insofar as individuals dare to be true to their own inner nature. enjoyed Kevin's fascinating exploration of the frog princess. From a wise masculine figure, to patriarchal rejection, to a masculine predilection for rushing into action and thinking, we learned that the ability to trust in the feminine, to allow for instinct, embodiment and emotion, gives the anima space to act positively in men's lives. The fairy tale shows us a path in which the male self is freer to evolve towards wholeness and realisation of the true personality of the individual. Thank you for listening and please visit us at www.youngsocietymelbourne.com or have a look at our Facebook page. 